0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to go ahead and turn to Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. That's going to be our kind of our passage for today. We're going to take off and land from there. Um, as soon as you get there, if you would, i sorry to ask you to do this, if you'd just go ahead and stand back up, and we'll stand in honor of the Lord's Word as we read together. From Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, it is its own trouble. So, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts of understanding today. We love you. Help us to see Jesus today. We pray this in his name. Amen. You be seated. All right. So... I have a question, and I want to find out something about everybody here that I'm not sure that I know about most of you, if I, and maybe even any of you. How many of you like to tube on the back of a boat? Okay. All right. So, a couple of weeks ago, we had the—I uh, know Sam does, because I'm going I'm to talk about him in just a second. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had the opportunity to go to the lake with uh, Kelly's mom and dad on their boat, and they have a tube— And I'm not really like a... That's just not something that I just get real excited about. You know, like I just like to go on the boat and just kind of relax and not really do a whole lot. And that's the opposite of everybody on Kelly's side of the family. And so... But anyway, we got the tube, and I got in the tube. I actually felt pretty good about it because I, that's not normally something I would do, and Sam asked me to get in the tube. and um, But anyway, a few minutes later, I got out of the tube and was back in the boat, and Sam wanted the tube by himself, and so he did. It didn't, you know, didn't go fast, of course, And uh, but I saw him. I mean, he was holding on for dear life, you know, like shaking with the waves and Taking a turn, and he would go up on the side, and all this kind of thing. And I was remember, I was just yelling back to him, "Hang on, buddy! Hang on! Don't let go!" And you know, you have to give the boat sign, like a, like you slow down or speed up, slow down. That's not a good thing to get confused, right? Uh, speed up, slow down. That's good, and stop. I think I got all those right. Is like the universal signs for for boating and tubing. So, uh, but you have to let go to give the sign. (laughs) It's kind of terrifying, you know. So, um, anyway, Sam was on the tube, and he was just shaking, holding on, but he was having a great time. But, I mean, kind of holding on for dear life, like, don't let go, whatever you do, buddy. And a few minutes later, it was about time for Hallie, our two-year-old's nap. And so, I picked her up, and while I'm looking at Sam, like, holding on to this tube, shaking and, like, holding on for life... I looked down after a few minutes, and guess what? Hallie had fallen asleep in the boat. Now, they were in the same, they were on the same lake. The same waves that were crashing along the tube were crashing on the boat. And it just hit me there's a difference between holding on and being held. Right? Sam wouldn't fall asleep on that tube. That would be devastatingly horrible. (laughs) Like, that's not something you do. But Hallie wasn't having to hold on, and she fell asleep. Same circumstances, same situation, two totally different outcomes from the two people that I was, happened to be watching in that moment. We've all found ourselves, probably especially lately, over the last couple of years, dealing with this type of anxious worry. Worry that Jesus mentions here in verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I have a feeling if I did ask you to raise your hand, uh, if you had dealt with some measure of worry and anxiety over the past couple of years, I imagine if not 100% of the people in this room's hand would go up, probably 95% of your hands would go up for all kinds of reasons. Um. Many of the things that Jesus talks about here are things that you'd expect him to talk about. Food, clothing, even, he says, your life itself. You can't By worrying, you can't add any time to your life. And what tomorrow will bring is how he closes out this chapter. Also, I'm well aware that the, the worst thing, some of you might not be aware of this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know. The worst thing that you can do to somebody who is in the midst of struggling with anxiety and stress is to say, stop it. Did you know that? It's not really actually very helpful. Um, But that's not what Jesus does here. But I want us to see why that's not what he does. Jesus talks about anxious worry in relation to something, and we're going to get there in just a few minutes. But I do want us to together make a few observations about worry. Um, Worry is a weakness that we all give way to from time to time. But it's a sin that is actually forbidden. Uh, One commentator says, worry is practical atheism. It's pretty strong. And Jesus gives us good reasons to believe this truth. Also, worry is unnecessary, even for the hardworking. How many of you guys have a bird nest somewhere around your house? How I many of you know birds work hard? They, they fly around and gather up straw and food for their, their babies. and all. So we've had several bird nests, and I can tell you, I feel like I, I watch these birds, and they work pretty hard to, to, to live and to, for their children and uh, these types of things. And worry for them, Jesus says, is even unnecessary. Also, worry is useless. This is what I mean by that, what Jesus says. Did you know that you can't add one second to your life? You can't add any time to your life. Worrying about it doesn't help. Worry is blind, it refuses to learn the lessons of God's providence taught to us by the birds and the flowers. Short lived as they are, one day is here, beautiful, the next day is thrown into the fire. But in their quiet dependence on their environment for display, they display that peace that should mark every believer who knows that behind their environment is a loving heavenly father. Worry is essentially a failure to trust God. We've already kind of said that. For the disciples to be of a little faith, what Jesus says in verse 30, it hurts God greatly. It means that we struggle to put our trust in him. And then finally, worry is kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. How many of you have found that often what you worry about, you end up maybe not having to worry about it, but you are miserable the whole time you're worried about it, right? We know this. Jesus is telling us how life works. (laughs) Jesus is not first saying, stop it. He's saying, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. This is how life works. This is how worry works. You're going to be stressed out, anxious about something that probably won't happen. In light of all those things that we just said, we still struggle with worry sometimes. We find that we're anxious. We want to be the kind of people who don't worry about these things, but we often still do. How many of you want to be worriers? Not warriors. Worriers. I don't want to be a worrier. Now, if we took a poll, an anonymous poll, and said, how many of you want to be worriers, we would probably get zero percent. Nobody wants to be a worrier. But then if we said what we said, a while ago, how many of you are worriers, a massive, overwhelming majority of numbers would probably, if it were anonymous, right? Of course. We all struggle with these things, but we don't want to. But here's what comes next after Jesus tells us not to worry in verse 33. This is what we're going to t- spend some time talking about today. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is not aloof And saying things as someone who's never suffered. Jesus is speaking as God. And we talk about that a a lot. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's been God. He's been with God from the beginning. He is God. But Jesus is also a man who experienced not having any clothes to wear. He experienced not having any food to eat. Surely experienced Sickness and the things that come along with being a human being. He even says at one time, the Son of Man doesn't even have anywhere to lay his head down. He's not speaking from a distance. He is speaking to sufferers as the sufferer. This is who Jesus is. Have you ever thought about him that way? Man of sorrows him with grief? You might think, what if he truly doesn't understand about all the difficulties in life in general, then there's the sufferings as a Christ follower in particular. And Jesus understood better than any of us ever will about the sin and brokenness of this world. But these things did not rob Jesus of trust in His heavenly Father, whose providence would not allow anything to come upon Him which was not ultimately from His hand. And we, like our king, are totally secure in our relationship with our Father, but will face things in life as a Christ follower, we simply, by living in a broken world, we will face difficulties. It's like being in the boat and falling asleep, not because it's an easy ride, but because you know who's holding you. You ever wonder, remember when Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and they're all freaking out because the storm has overtaken the boat? They thought they're all going to die. Don't you care that we're going to die? Remember, that's what they said to him. And he uh, kind of groggily, what if that's a word, wakes up and rubs his eyes, and then he just stands up, rebukes the waves, and then rebukes them for their lack of faith. Why? Because Jesus knew that he was being held by his Father. There was never a doubt in his mind. I used to say, and I'm sure I've said this probably in the last couple of years, I'd rather be uh, in, uh, in the boat in storm-tossed waves with Jesus than safely on the shore without him. But I, I think I'm beginning to realize that living life brings storm-tossed waves to everybody. The question isn't, will you be in a storm? The question is, will Jesus be with you in the storm? You are going to be in a storm. You are going to go through difficulties in your life. Just by virtue of being a human being living on the earth, it's affected with sin and brokenness. And then also by, being, by virtue of being a follower of the Lord Jesus, you will deal with suffering and with All kinds of things that come along with him. The question is not, will you face difficulty? The question is, will Jesus be with you in the difficulty? Or better yet, we should say, will you be with him in the difficulty? We will face the waves of life as long as we long for the shore of heaven. That's what we're going to sing about here in just a few minutes. But this one thing that Charles Spurgeon is allegedly quoted to have said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. You ever heard that? Can you say that? The storms of life are going to throw you against something. What will they throw you against? We follow a crucified Messiah. This life will be and has been difficult. We're not promised an easy life. We are promised, however, unremitting, endless, detailed, loving care of our Father over every aspect of your life. Think about the big events in your life just for a moment. Think about when you had your, this is Father's Day. Think if, you're, if you had the privilege and the gift of being a dad, think about the day that you held your, your child. Think about your wedding day. Think about whatever, whatever the big events in your life. We say, God isn't simply caring, doesn't simply care about those things. Think about the, when you woke up this morning and got dressed. When you woke up this morning and went to the pantry and got a Pop-Tart out of the pantry to eat. Like the mundane things that like seem like they don't matter. And that's what Jesus says your Father provides for you in. The things that seem like they don't, they're really not that big of a deal. But without God's provision, it's not that the big things wouldn't come together or wouldn't have happened. It's that the small things. You had food to eat, clothes to wear, a bed to lay down in. If you lived in Nashville two nights ago, you might not have had electricity. Um, but man, God's provision for us is so, so good. He takes care of his children. And even in deep need in the hour of death, which many of pe- many of people in our congregation have faced, or you have family members who have faced over the last year or so, the fruit of trusting Jesus are evident in the way we behave as, as those who live in the kingdom of Jesus. And a lot of this one commentator writes, I just want you to listen to this. I thought this was incredibly helpful. He says, there should be a quiet glow, a radiance about us that come that comes from acknowledging God's rule in our lives and from seeking to act righteously and so to stay in that right relationship with him, when those things are in place, a Christian life stands out as a beacon in the surrounding gloom. He says there is in the life of a 14th century a German mystic Johann Taller a remarkable story that shows something of the attitude Jesus was looking for in his disciples. Listen to this. One day, Taller met a beggar. God give you a good day, my friend, he said. The beggar answered, I thank God I never had a bad one. Then Toller said, "God give you a happy life, my friend." I thank God," said the beggar, "that I am never unhappy." In amazement, Toller asked, "What do you mean? Wouldn't you you'd probably ask the same thing? What are you talking about?" Well," said the beggar, "when it is fine, I thank God. When it rains, I thank God." When I have plenty, I thank God. When I'm hungry, I thank God. And since God's will is my will and whatever pleases him pleases me, why should I say that I am unhappy when I'm not? Taller looked at the man in astonishment. It sounds like a question that Jesus was asked. Who are you? He asked. I'm a king, said the beggar. Where then is your kingdom, asked Taller. The beggar replied quietly, it's in my heart. This is what Peter means when he says, people will ask you about the hope that you have. This guy calls people to ask questions, not because of the circumstances he was in, but because of his attitude in the midst of the circumstances. I had the privilege of talking to some of the graduates from the Charm graduation a couple weeks ago and said, Jesus has a lot more to say about the kind of person you are in your circumstances than he does about the circumstances you find yourself in. The answer to being anxiously worried is not to hear over and over again, stop worrying. That's not the answer. The solution to anxious worry is to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness as the priority of your life. This is the thing that we said earlier, Jesus understands anxious worry in relation to, seeking God's kingdom. And when we seek God's kingdom, then we will see, as Jesus did, the work of his Father in everything. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I just want you to think for a moment. What does it mean to seek something? I have two of these types of questions that seem like, you ever, have you ever talked to somebody and it seems like they're asking you a simple question, but you know that they're asking you a simple question because they're trying to like get you? Like what you think the answer is is probably not actually the answer. I'm not doing that, I promise. But what does it really mean to seek something? Let's take something that's consequential but not life-altering. How many of you lost your keys this morning on the way to church? Or before you were on the way to church, anybody? No? Okay, that's great. How many of you have you ever lost your keys? Okay, constantly. (laughs) Yeah. How many of you guys have one of those chirp things on your key ring so if you do lose them, you can find them pretty quick? Okay, that's great. Greatest invention in a long time. I've lost my keys, it's very frustrating. It's not life altering, it's not gonna end your life or anything crazy like that, but it is frustrating. And I would just ask, what does it mean when you are searching for your keys? It means that you look for them everywhere until you find them. Okay? That's what it means. The kingdom of God is God in action. And to seek something, to go and search for it, looking everywhere until you find it, the kingdom of God is God working. It is where the will of God is carried out. So what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6.33, just think about this for a second. Jesus tells us to look for God in action everywhere all the time. Does that make sense? Just consider that for a moment. When is the last time? Because here's what we, it's kind of, it's easy to do, to think about church and to think about the kingdom of God, and we equate that in our minds with coming to a church building. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's, I'm saying that kind of just happens. That's what we think about. What we seek for or look for reveals who we are at a really, really deep level. We look for what we love and desire. You remember in John 1.38, some of the, uh, John's disciples, John has just announced who Jesus is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And some of his disciples are kind of talking about who Jesus is, and they don't really understand, but uh, some of them decide to follow Jesus with John's blessing. And they come up to Jesus, and he turns around and he says, Anybody know? What are you seeking? Pastor Brandon, not thought a, a good bit. That's a really important question. Jesus asks this question or this type of question all the time. When he talks to the, uh, the men who are blind and they're begging, Son of David, have mercy on us. Says, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What are you looking for? What are you all about? I just want to ask you that question. Just consider for a moment in your own life, in your own heart. Don't try to, to think about what somebody else would say about you instead of what you would say about yourself, because sometimes that's helpful. Think about if I were to turn to my spouse or somebody who knows me really intimately and I ask them, What do you think I'm all about? What would they say? What are you all about? What are you devoted to in your life? What do I have to talk to you for no longer than five minutes to know is important to you? Are you looking for comfort, prosperity, happiness, meaning, knowledge, pleasure, fun? Some of you may be just looking for rest. I'm just worn out, I just need a rest. What are you seeking? And Jesus says it is in pursuit of these things that we just listed as the ultimate things that they are potentially lost and you are anxious. Do you see that? If you look for these things as ultimate, if you seek these things first, you might not get them, you might get them, and you for sure will be anxious and worried about it. If you want to lead a life of anxiety and worry, continue to think that your anxiety and worry is the solution to your anxiety and worry. It's not. But it is in seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It is in looking for God's action and joining in with Him that no matter what comes, we can have joy trusting that He is holding us. This has everything to do with my life and with your life right now here's a question i asked you what does it mean to seek for something what does it mean to be lost think about that for a second i heard somebody ask this one time and i thought uh do you know what it means to be lost uh, i think so but the fact that you're asking me that question makes me think it makes me kind of puts me in doubt i'm not real sure i know what it means to be lost You are not lost when you don't know where you were. You are not lost when you don't know where you're going. Do you know when you're lost? You're lost when you don't know where you are. You ever been in the woods? and you lost, you kind of got turned around a little bit, or ever been somewhere before GPS was a thing on your phone, and you thought for a second, I'm not sure where I'm going, which direction I need to be heading, I don't know where my destination is, I'm not really sure where I came from, but if you can find out on a map, I'm right here. You can navigate your way in, well, some of you can. can navigate your way anywhere you need to go. To be lost means you don't know where you are right now. And this is how many of us feel today. Jesus did come to die on the cross of Calvary. He was raised for our justification. He did ascend into heaven so that we could know where we're going after this life. But those of us in this room are not there yet. We're not in heaven yet. You know where you are? You're right here. Listening to me speak with an open Bible in your lap, living your life. And the same Jesus who died and rose again to take us to heaven when we die has a lot to say about how you live your life right now. It's like all the things that we could depend on have been shaken up. Pastor Brandon said that everything in your life that can be shaken will be shaken. We've heard that several times over the last couple of years. So in the midst of this, uh, the, these dramatic shifts that are happening in our, in our world, there's seemingly nothing to look back to or to look forward to because things are so uncertain. How many of you feel like that? You watch the news and you just think, man, things are just so uncertain. Not sure what's going to happen tomorrow. But this is why this has relevance for you and I right now. I found it very interesting to not just look at what Jesus said, but also look at what Jesus did. How did he live his life? And at the end of this part of the sermon, he talks about worrying about tomorrow. I had this conversation with a friend last week and we were talking about the way Jesus lived his life. We talked about how Jesus was always in the moment. Do you think that there was ever a time where Jesus was in, the woman at the will, and Jesus was talking to her, and he was looking at his watch, and wondering, I wonder where the disciples are, and if he had a phone, he would be checking his Twitter feed, and if he had a news app, he would be looking at the news and just wondering kind of halfway listening to her. It's what we hear all the time. We live in an age of constant partial attention. Do you think that Jesus could be characterized of having constant partial attention? No. Do you know why? Because he knew where he was. He also knew where he was going. If you and I are constantly worried about where we're going or where we've been, we will be incapable of living where we are. Anxious worry is not synonymous with thinking about this. We should think about where we're going often. We should consider heaven, think about what comes after this life and those types of things. But thinking about is not the same thing as being anxiously worried about. And if you're anxiously worried about what has been and what's to come and you're not able to live in the now, friendships will suffer, your gospel witness will suffer, marriages will suffer, children will wonder why they never have your attention. We've always heard this question, are you lost, referencing do you know where you're going when you die? And I just want to ask you today, are you lost, meaning do you know where you are right now? Are you able to live now for Jesus? When you wake up tomorrow and go to work or go to school, are you so incapacitated by worry and anxiety that you're not able to live as a Christian now? That is exactly what Jesus does not want for you. He wants you to live in the moment as a follower of Jesus right now. When you're talking to somebody, give them your attention and be able to because you're trusting that God is holding you. This is what I meant earlier when I said that joy comes into the now, not in light of our circumstances, but by living in the kingdom of Jesus and by seeking his kingdom first. And here are a few ways, real quick, in the last last few minutes, of how not to seek the kingdom. Number one, to worry about things. To have this anxious worry. That might sound like an oversimplification, but according to Jesus' words here, it's not an oversimplification. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. He's telling his people, those who live in his kingdom, not to worry. And often this neglect of the kingdom of God and his righteousness happens passively. That's the first way. You can live your life in anxious worry all the time. And you can miss the kingdom. Or you can be putting up an active affront to the kingdom of God. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They wanted to build up their kingdom, which meant so they felt tearing down Jesus' kingdom had to happen. It says in Matthew 27, 18, for Jesus knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And then he says in John 12 about the Pharisees and religious leaders, John 12, 42 through 43, Nevertheless, many, uh, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved... Here it is. You know what the sin of the Pharisees was? Scriptures all say they loved money. Here's what caused them to betray and to seek the death of the Messiah. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And if you think that loving the glory that comes from people-pleasing is a small thing, it is the thing that caused the Pharisees to betray and to seek the death of King Jesus. This is what, when we try to set up our kingdom and have an, uh, actually a front against the kingdom of God, and we say both cannot stand. This is what happened in the garden. Your kingdom cannot stand and God's kingdom cannot stand when they are mutually exclusive from one another. If you are bearing the name of Jesus but bound and determined to build your own kingdom on the back of Jesus, your kingdom will eventually crash and burn. And often what that looks like, as C.S. Lewis helps us here, is he says there's two options. Either we will look at God and say, your will be done, or God will look at you eventually, ultimately, say, your will be done. And often what it looks like for our kingdoms to come crashing and burning down is this is what God's judgment looks like. is him handing over to our, us to our desires and allowing us to reap the consequences. That's what happened to the religious leaders in Israel. There are some here today that might be in that first category. You might be putting up an active front to the kingdom of God. However, I'm assuming, maybe presuming, that most of of us fall into the, the other category. In living your life, you simply don't know how, or in knowing how, you simply do not seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. What if Jesus' words here, I really want you to hear, to hear this. It's really important. What if Jesus' words here in Matthew 6 were not in opposition to living a joy-filled, abundant life, but were actually the way to live this joy-filled and abundant life that we all desperately desire? How many of you want to be miserable? Again, the anonymous poll. Nobody's hand's going to go up. We all want to have joy. We all want to have abiding, everlasting, experiential love from our Father. But Jesus says, and that's what we said a while ago, none of us want to be worried, but most of us are worried. And we say, because most of us think that worrying is the solution to our worry. But Jesus says, seeking the kingdom of God is the answer to anxious worry. It's not mutually exclusive. It's actually the way into the life Jesus promised us. And it reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. We've talked about these words much in recent days. Matthew 11:28 through 30. Listen to this, y'all. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Y'all, everybody's going to bear a burden. Everybody's going to carry a yoke. Everybody in here, right now, I don't know what your burden is, but I know you've got one. I don't know what your yoke is, but I know you've got one. Everybody does. This is what life is. Yoke carrying and burden bearing. But Jesus calls you to get into the yoke with Him. This is what would often happen. A younger, inexperienced ox would be yoked together with an older, more experienced ox who knew what he was doing. The older and stronger one would train the younger one to do what was inevitable, what they had to do anyway. But when we're yoked to Jesus, he shows us, this is what we often think Jesus will do for us. This is what surely, maybe you've thought to yourself, oh, if I follow Jesus, my circumstances will get better. The burden will be lifted and the yoke will be lifted. Jesus, that's not what he says. Jesus doesn't say, uh, I will take the burden or the yoke. He says, get into this yoke with me because I will show you how to navigate and to work in this yoke. And my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn from me. You want to know how to live your life? Not just what comes next after, after you die, but you want to know how to live? Look at Jesus. He teaches us not just how to die well, but how to live well. Often we are tempted to think that living in the kingdom of Jesus is some abstract attainment for a person that they might reach through special knowledge or practices. That's for the special few, but it's certainly not for me. I have too much to worry about. I'm too busy living my life. I go to church and hear about it, but actually doing it will take too much time. This again is the misconception about living your life as a category separate and mutually exclusive from living in the kingdom of God. Living your life in the kingdom and search for and the quest for the kingdom of God is not different than living your life. It is the, your life is the thing that you are doing while you're looking for it. One of my favorite authors says it like this. The supreme act of seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness is allowing our all-sufficient Savior to perfect His will and way in our lives. Not in spite of our lives. In our lives. God is involved with each of us patiently at work to lead us in gradual and humble steps through, not around. I'm adding the not around. This is what we think. God's going to In Christ, and His Holy Spirit is going to navigate me around the problem. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that He will be with you in the midst of the problem. He's with you as you live your life. All the twists and turns and successes and failures of our lives, as we exercise our freedom by choosing to trust in Christ, we develop the depths of life with God. We become shaped in the image of God, of the one with whom we spend time and to whom we give our hearts. Take heart in knowing that Jesus is not waiting for you to no longer be in the mess. Because you know what? The day's never going to come. We will always struggle. This is what it means to live in a broken, sinful world. He is with you in the mess. And it is in the mess, in the everyday stuff of life, the pain, the suffering, the joys and sorrows, the good, the bad, that he calls you to seek first the kingdom of God. Don't wait till you're no longer in that to seek the kingdom because it won't happen. While you're in the midst of it, seek the kingdom of God. He invites you and I to look everywhere for God at work all the time and to join Him. So I'd say in closing, Jesus came and laid down His life on the cross of Calvary. He satisfied God's wrath towards sin in the place of sinners. He was victorious over Satan, sin, and death. He died so that we can die to self and take up our cross and follow Him. The irony in the kingdom of God is that when we take up our cross and follow in the footsteps of our king, it's only then that we can truly live. It is in living in absolute and complete dependence on our heavenly father that we can have what Jesus called abundant life. How many of you want abundant life? I see a lot of heads nodding. How many of you maybe are coming to realize the way you've been after the abundant life is not the way to attain it? It is in living in absolute and complete dependence on our Heavenly Father that we can have abundant life. Again, that doesn't mean that the waves won't crash around us. It just means that we can rest safely in the arms of our Father knowing He is the one who holds us fast in the storms of life. And I'd say in closing before we pray, come to Jesus and die. And come to Jesus and truly live. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of our savior and lord jesus christ father i pray that you help us to realize today what it really means to seek the kingdom god i pray that you would give us grace to do so i pray that all the anxiety and stress and worry that we experience that you would by your holy spirit help us to realize that you hold us in the palm of your hand. Difficulties will come, have come, are coming, and will continue to come in this life. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. God, I pray that you would help us to see that Jesus and his kingdom is where we are called to live. That we would seek you and your will being done at all places, at all times, for your glory and for our joy. I pray that we would not merely look unto where we are going after this life, though that is so important, but you would help us to look where we are today. Jesus tells us how to live right now. So give us grace to understand that and pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.